Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Twelve jurors and three alternates will be sitting in judgment of Derek Chauvin in the murder case of George Floyd. The prosecution laid out their case. It was extraordinary, compelling. They showed the entire video of not just Officer Chauvin, But he and the officers, the other five officers who were participating with him in holding back the crowd or sitting on George Floyd's back and legs, and of course uh, Chauvin murdering him as we watched, as people were begging him to stop, as the uh, prosecution pointed out, there was an EMT or a guy who was trained as an EMT in the crowd, a first responder in the crowd. There was another person who was a mixed martial artist who had EMT training or uh, a CPR kind of training in the crowd. They tried to intervene. They were not allowed to intervene by the police officers. He is being charged, Chauvin is being charged with uh, both second and third degree murder. Second degree murder, the much more serious charge. But they were successful. The defense did not want there to be a third-degree murder charge in there because that's the fallback position if the jury thinks, well, you know, he was a cop and you just never know. Uh, Cops have to have a lot of latitude and quack, 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 you know, the stuff that they usually throw out. At least uh, they could use the third-degree murder charge so he would still be convicted of murder and still would spend probably a decade or more in prison. There are uh, 12 jurors and three alternatives Uh, It's a mix of men and women, black, multiracial, and white people. Seven of them are under 40 years old. And in all probability, there's there's other officers who are on trial now, three specifically of the, uh, they've all been fired now, ex-Minneapolis Police Departments, Floyd Keung, K-U-E-N-G, Kung, maybe I'm mispronouncing it, Thomas Lane, and Tao Thao, T-H-A-O, are charged with aiding and abetting a murder. And if Chauvin is convicted of murder, it's going to make it a lot easier to have an aiding and abetting. If he's dismissed or or declared innocent or whatever it may be, it's going to be much more difficult. So, you know, another trial kind of hangs on this trial. And the defense started their little shtick and, you know, started going into, you know, he's a bad guy and he was on drugs and he had a history of heart disease and, and he, he passed a $20 counterfeit bill and the guy came out and politely asked him to make it good and he said, screw you. And, you know, basically trying to portray George Floyd as a bad guy. Whether he was a bad guy or not is not what's at, in dispute here. Uh, whether he was a bad guy or not has nothing to do with whether he should get the death penalty for you know what may or may not turn out to be passing a, a you know a phony twenty dollar bill, which was what started all this. That's not the issue. The issue is whether when police are stopping people that they think are bad guys, they should kill them. I mean, you know, this is pretty straightforward stuff. I don't get why, you know, this is like confusing or, uh, you know, disconcerting or whatever the word is to people on the right. But, well, you watch Fox News for 10 minutes and it's all about, you know, oh, another bad guy, black guy. 
is trying to defend him. You know, it's, yeah, right. There's an analog uh, to this. In the piece that I published over at uh, HartmanReport.com, and, but right now, uh, the question that I ask in the headline, in fact, of, of today's piece over at HartmanReport.com, uh, which you can sign up for for free, is will America hold Trump and his enablers to account for 400,000 unnecessary deaths? Is this manslaughter now that Trump has gone out and bragged that he not only ignored scientific evidence, he did the exact opposite of what he was told. I mean, it's pretty straightforward stuff. And, and you say, well, 400,000? Why'd you say 400,000? Well, here, here's the deal. While Deborah Burks, you know, I, I don't know if you caught the CNN special last night. Sean and I were just talking about it a few minutes ago. It was rather horrifying. And there were, you know, a lot of the things, for example, that the former... CDC director was ruining the CDC. I don't know how to say it beyond that. That really didn't get brought up. But, uh, you know, everybody was trying to say, well, I didn't do it. Trump made me do it, essentially. Or, you know, we thought we were doing the best that we could. But so Burks and, and her friends are on their kind of clean up our reputation tour right now. But, well, and she pointed out last night that, you know, she was getting significant pressure from Donald Trump and the people around him. And ultimately, after April, she just got cut out of all the conversation altogether. And I would say that was after April 7th. She didn't specify a date. But CNN clearly was mystified about what happened after the, you know, in the third week of April. How come everything changed or the second week of April? But she said that she was getting this pressure. Trump himself then went on Fox News a day or three ago and said that when Anthony Fauci told him how to save American lives, he said, uh, I was doing the opposite of what he, what he was saying, of what Fauci was saying. So this 400,000 number that I came up with, I didn't come up with. The Brookings Institution convened a convention over the last week and solid scientific evidence was laid out that had Donald Trump simply done the simple stuff that like Australia was doing, or frankly, most other developed countries in the world were doing. Now, at this point in time, uh, you you can't kind of hold up some of the Western European countries as great models because they got caught flat-footed. I mean, the virus just burned through those countries before they realized what was going on. But uh, the countries that were like Australia that said, or New Zealand or Taiwan or South Korea, they just said, hey, everybody, wear masks. Don't go into any public venues. We're going to shut down the bars and restaurants. They did that and, you know, very, very few deaths. So what these scientists said, well, this is how Reuters summed it up in the first paragraph of their story. Quote, the United States squandered both money and lives in its response to the coronavirus pandemic, and it could have avoided nearly 400,000 deaths with a more effective health strategy and trimmed federal spending by hundreds of billions of dollars while still supporting those who needed it. In other words, because Donald, and in fact, they go on to say, this is one of, one of the researchers at the conference said, this guy is an economist with UCLA. He said, if by last May, the country had adopted widespread mask, social distancing, and testing protocols. Now, was by last May. Now, there was no dispute among anybody in real science by May that we had to have masks, social distancing, and testing. But Donald Trump, no, he was opposed to all those things. So anyhow, they say, if by last May, the country had adopted widespread mass social distancing and testing protocols while awaiting vaccines, end of quote, we could have saved 400,000 Americans from death. And that doesn't even count all the people who got sick and now have long hauler syndrome or had strokes and are not paralyzed or have damage to their lungs and now have COPD or have damage to their heart and now have heart conditions. I mean, it does. So the question I'm asking is, when is this man going to be held accountable? When does the manslaughter trial begin? When does Congress look into this? I'll fill in this rant in just a minute on the other side of the break here. But, uh, you know, whatever happened to accountability in America? Republican accountability. (laughs) 
Elizabeth in Huntington, West Virginia. Hey, Elizabeth, what's on your mind today? I was watching the trial that's going on about the killing of George Floyd. I saw a similar incident when I was living in South St. Pete, and it was a black neighborhood, and a sister got the police called on her, and the woman taught at the college was totally decent, but the policeman overreacted, grabbed her hand as she was leaning away from him on her Volkswagen, and he jerked her across so hard he hit the hood of his police car. She landed on the ground, and he was sitting on her chest choking her. And I screamed out, you're killing her. And he heard a white voice and snapped, and he stopped. And I had to testify with some kind of commissioner or something, and they moved that black man out of the white neighborhood rather than waste all that money they put on the training. So wait a minute. So the black family that was the victim of police violence moved out of it? No, police moved the white policeman that they invested money in training and all that to a white neighborhood only because he had racial bigotry that was dangerous. Oh, so so instead of firing the cop or even punishing him, they simply said, you can't do this to black people anymore, so you just get to do it to white people, but we know you'll be respectful because you're obviously a white supremacist. That's the other thing. They were trying to blame what happened on her. She was having an argument with her sister for asking her what she and her white husband did in the bed. And her kids were preschoolers, so she was upset. And the sister, her black sister, she was black, called the police on her. And they sent out a policeman with an attitude who overreacted. And wow. I testified. This is a biracial couple. What happened, because they were trying to cover their touche, excuse me for the mm. word, by yep. um, having her arrested like she was at fault. And I testified, and she got totally exonerated. Well, that's good. Elizabeth, about what year did this happen? Oh, God. It's been about 30 years ago. This black-white stuff has been going on a long time. Oh, it's been going on for 420 years. I mean, it's, yeah, (laughs) I'm totally with you. Well, 400 years, I guess. black, and I can still name them, and I still, we'd sit around joking. And one of them that I had the most fun with was half Hawaiian. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. I think people need to be growing up around people who don't look like them. We need to to have diversity in our media, but we have to have diversity in our neighborhoods as well. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, Yeah, I'm sorry, Elizabeth. We're, We're out of time here. But thank you for the call. And thanks for sharing that story. It's a great story. So there's a new study that has, this is not peer-reviewed, but it is in preprint. It, it is being peer-reviewed as we speak, where the scientists were looking at the ability of the COVID virus to jump from the human species, you know, started with bats and then it apparently went to pangolins and then to humans, to jump from humans to other species, which would be a big problem. If we can infect other mammals, you know, our cats and dogs, if we can infect rats or mice, who have traditionally been disease vectors for all kinds of things, from the bubonic plague to hantavirus, if we can infect them with this virus, we've got a whole brand new problem. And sure enough, they have found that these two variants, B351 and P1, both can infect mice in the laboratory. They say this abrogation of the species barrier represents you know, a serious problem. It's over at TomHartman.com. Check it out. Welcome back. Well, just just to wrap this up, you know, the, the Republicans, for some reason, have kind of forgotten their own history. Back in, in the 1940s, I mean, it was 1941 when, uh, December 7, 1941, when Pearl Harbor happened. And Republicans were all in a froth about this. 
you know, my, my dad, who was a teenager at the time, you know, when, when Pearl Harbor, he was a young teen, he, was, he joined the Army at 17 in 1944. He, to the day he died, was convinced that FDR let the Japanese attack us at Pearl Harbor because he wanted to get into the war against Hitler in Europe. He wanted to help out the British. He wanted to help out his friend Winston Churchill. Which, you know, I mean, you can argue that if it's, if it's true, that that might not necessarily be the most terrible thing. But the Republicans were all over this. They were like, you know, we've got to have accountability. I mean, this president might have created a circumstance, Pearl Harbor, uh, and lied to us about it, that led to the death of hundreds of thousands of American soldiers in World War II. What the hell happened? And so, you know, one of the four horsemen on the U.S. Supreme Court, his name was Justin Owen Roberts, he was the lead conservative on the court. He was the, 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 one of the crankiest of the right-wing cranks. He was, he, actually, he was the guy who changed his mind in 1937 after enormous public pressure and started going along with the New Deal. But up until that point, he, had been sh- he, he was one of the guys who said, no, you can't have child labor laws. That's a violation of the right to contract, for example. So anyhow, he headed up what was called the Roberts Commission in the late 1940s to investigate Franklin Roosevelt. What did he know and when did he know it? And after they looked at all the evidence, they said, well, it wasn't FDR. So, uh, and and they, they laid the blame on the two guys who were in command of Pearl Harbor. That was the uh, Navy Admiral, his name was Husband Kimmel, and the Army General, his name was Walter Short. You know, whenever Republicans think that a Democrat might be to blame for anything, they want accountability. The George W. Bush administration used private servers throughout the eight years of their administration to conduct government business. And then when, as George Bush was leaving office, 22 million emails were deleted from that system and have never been seen since. But, you know, in comes Barack Obama. He makes Hillary Clinton his secretary of state. She sets up a private server in her home just for her personal email so that she can keep her personal email separate from her government email. And they find out about this and they go absolutely bat guano crazy. Oh, my God. 30,000 missing emails. What was so astonishing to me during that entire period was that the media seemed to have forgotten that George W. Bush lost 22 million emails and Dick Cheney and all their senior officials. But they went nuts. I mean, you know, this this, uh, investigation covered three years, cost our country tens of millions of dollars, and in the end she was cleared of all the charges. But they had to hold her accountable for something. So when four Americans died of Benghazi in the years after the State Department had asked for extra funds to harden the the Benghazi outpost and Republicans in the United States Senate said, no, no, that's big government spending. We're not going to appropriate the money. After that happened, we had four Americans die at Benghazi. It was accountability time again. And again, years of investigations into Benghazi, dozens of congressional or over a dozen congressional investigations hours of testimony, and at the end, nothing. You know, Republicans even held Richard Nixon accountable. It wasn't Democrats who went over to the White House to tell him he had to leave town. It was a bunch of Republicans led by Barry Goldwater. So now we have a Republican former president who made intentional decisions, I would say politically motivated decisions, in the face of all the evidence that according to scientists this week, led to 400,000 Americans dying who did not have to die. What are we going to do? I think this is manslaughter. I think at the very least of 400,000 people, I think it's mass murder. I think that there should be accountability. I think that there should be a criminal trial or at and I realize, you know, sovereign immunity is going to make that very very difficult, so, you know, lacking that At least, at the very least, we have to have congressional hearings and there needs to be a commission looking into this. But I would love to see a court looking into it as well. I mean, over a half a million Americans have died and 400,000 of them 
according to these scientists, did not need to die. So, Donald Trump kills people, uh, Derek Chauvin kills a man, and, and God only knows what he did before this. That, that, I'm pretty sure that evidence can't be brought into court. Accountability for Chauvin? We'll see. I'm skeptical, but you know, hey, it's, it's a diverse jury and it seems like a slam dunk case. We'll see. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Stand Up, Struggle Forward by Sanyika Shakur. And this is a book that was written back in the late 90s, but it's still very, very timely. This is from the second chapter titled Class Antagonisms Inside the Fundamental Contradiction of National Oppression. Having just passed the 19th and quickly approaching the 20th anniversary of the L.A. Rebellion, we should be reminded here of what Rodney King whimpered as he stood in front of a bank of microphones surrounded by class enemies and neo-colonial politicians. We should remember how he'd been dressed in that non-threatening cardigan sweater, white shirt, and black tie. How his hair had been tortured into submission by a jerry curl. We should reflect as well upon how timid and spooked he looked and on how concerned and stern those who flanked him were as well. That was a Kodak moment. It was staged to foster an image of contrition and resignation, submission, a victim. Rodney King had been led to believe through a bourgeois sense of reasoning that the rebellion was really about him, that the reason new Africans and Mexicanos took to the streets of South Central was the result of his filmed beating. That, of course, is typical of mechanical bourgeois thinking. What it's not typical of, however, is someone from the hood. And this cuts both ways. No one in the hoods and barrios ever thought it was about Rodney King. We'd all seen the film over and over like everyone else, but that was par for the course. We'd always seen that, long before anybody caught it on tape. Actually, we'd experienced much more than that. Why, it's safe to say that the hoods had gone to war with each other, in vicious waves of internal, intra-class combat, for much less than that. Though, because of a general colonial mentality which prevents the challenging of bottom-up oppression, the same hood forces will not, in any systemic way, wage war on the pigs, or for freedom, land, and socialism. Rodney King alone, and of his own accord, would not have thought to hold a press conference to ask the asinine question in the form of a whimpering request, can't we just all get along? The fact of the matter is, we are getting along. New Africans and Mexicanos are getting along just fine. What we couldn't understand was why he was admonishing us for getting at the exploiters of our communities. The impression he gave with his handler's hands up his back like a ventriloquist troll 
was that a race riot was going on, as if we had all begun to kill each other or burn and rob each other's homes. His handlers compelled him to send up a false flag, a diversion. But you see, this was the very thing that exposed the class interests and reactionary politics of the Uncle Toms that had been designated to handle him, and by extension, us. Let's go back for a minute. Let's talk social development, a.k.a. history. There exists a fundamental contradiction in our lives that, like an elephant in the room, no one wants to acknowledge. As a consequence of the war waged upon various African nations by European powers, those of us captured and kidnapped were taken out of our own self-determining social developments and violently forced into Euro-American history. This is not simply a clever play on words. This is a reality. We lost the ability to control our own destiny. Read that again. From that time until now, the fundamental basic contradiction between the U.S. oppressor nation and our own oppressed and colonized nation has been the governing imperialist relationship, which is to say, us not being in control of the qualitative factors that determine our lives as a people, as a nation. Our tradition of struggle against this fundamental contradiction has taken many forms, some hidden or obscured, some open and hostile. But all of these have been open to resolve the fundamental contradiction and to regain our independence. While there have been some bona fide struggles to resolve the contradiction, there have also been reactionary neocolonial struggles waged by internal enemies loyal to the oppressor nation and culture that have tried time and time again to subvert and control our destiny for the benefit of the capitalists. They've come among us, always imposed from above, stirring up emotions and giving lip service to progress, equality, justice, and prosperity. These always within the colonial confines of the oppressor's arrangements, and none collectively ever materialize, because without a resolution of the fundamental contradiction, that is the freeing of our productive forces from U.S. imperialism and the governing of our own affairs, will remain a minority within the American system as opposed to a majority in our own and subjected to the established bourgeois social contract, i.e. colonialism, neo and post. We can parade all through the empire with black congressmen, black mayors, black governors, black police chiefs, black Supreme Court justices, hell, even a black president, and absolutely nothing will alter the genocidal relationship that governs our national oppression here because the blacks are part of the colonial apparatus. They have made a strategic alliance with the capitalist imperialists to act as go-betweens in our oppression and exploitation. This is a conscious class stand. The black petty bourgeois is not innocently confused, like, say, Mrs. Jackson across the street is, about our national oppression, about the existence and subjugation of New Africa. They are well-read, have traveled in our experience. They've just chosen sides against us and in favor of our historical enemies. And the sooner we recognize and internalize this, the better off we'll be. Black ain't nothing but a color. As a designation of our national identity, it has played out. It is a superficial understanding at best and a foolish and dangerous analysis at worst. We have no collective control over the qualitative factors which determine our lives. We do not, in other words, control our destiny, not as a people or a state. The book is Stand Up, Struggle Forward by Sanika Shakur. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Picking up your thoughts on uh, the Derek Floyd trial and holding Donald Trump accountable for this shocking number that was just reported uh, last Thursday, or came out of this conference last Thursday, that 400,000 Americans did not have to die if Donald Trump had simply taken the simple measures that were being taken at that point in time, back in May, by other countries. Um, it's amazing. And of course, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Chauvin trial is back on. Right now, the uh, defense is presenting their case. They've got the 9-11 operator on the stand. Uh, just ba- they're just basically you know, laying the foundation for everything. I'll keep you up to date on what's going on with that as well. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's on your mind today? Uh, the Derek uh, Chauvin trial, of course. Uh, and I did mm-hmm. want to give you uh, what I think is going to be the outcome of that trial. I think that uh, Mr. Chauvin, uh, and I use the term Mr. Uh, loosely, is I think he's going to be acquitted. Uh, And I think he's going to be acquitted because what he did was within, uh, and and that's a separate argument, but was within the training confines of that particular department. Uh, 
But more importantly, Tom, what I wanted to say to you is this. This is the same playbook that we see over and over and over again. Uh, whether it's uh, Trayvon Martin, uh, Tamir Rice, uh, you know, there's names, Freddie Oscar, Tony, Sandra, Botham, Walter, Tatiana, plethora of others. They're all dead. But the cessation of their heartbeats is just the first killing. You see, we get killed as black people in the United States three times. The first killing is a result of hatred and a penchant towards brutality and a false sense of superiority. And once the body that housed that summarily executed black person in America is destroyed and traumatized, the second killing begins. The body is the first part of a triumvirate. The second part is the character of the executed. The second killing is a result of denial, hypocrisy, and the inner conflict that arises from both. The third killing is the general demoralization of black people in the United States as a group. And this holy, holy trinity results in a psychosocial electric fence. And it's very much by design. This happens over and over again. You may recall the uh, infamous riots, as they are called, in Los Angeles in 1992. Everyone uh, attributed to it to the Rodney King case, but that wasn't what set those things off. What set it off was the killing of Latasha Harland, a 15-year-old black child who was shot in the back of the head, had to have a closed casket funeral by a Korean store owner who got a six-month suspended sentence and 140 hours, I think, of community service. And then after that child was killed, it was justified in the media that her parents were crack addicts and uh, her father was abusive. What did that have to do with the killing of that child? And a year ago, almost a year ago, I wrote a piece uh, called Once Dead, Thrice Killed. And this happens over and over again. Trayvon Martin. I remember. I read it. In his book. You're talking the, the piece, yeah. the piece you put on op-ed-news.com. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Trayvon Martin had weed in his book bag. A 17-year-old boy. How many white boys have weed in their book bag at 17 years Correct. old in suburban America? Are you kidding? And this happens over and over again. And I'm wondering when is when are the American people going to wake up to this playbook? Yeah, you it's know, it's, it's an old shtick, you know. Uh, it demonize and criminalize black people. And, and John Ehrlichman just, you know, laid this out. He said, you know, we couldn't make black people illegal in the United States or anti-war hippies. He said, so we associated them with heroin and cocaine and, and marijuana. And then we criminalized all those things to the max so that we could use those as excuses to disrupt their communities. That was the phrase he used. You know, Ehrlichman, the guy who was Richard Nixon's right-hand man. And, it, you know, I mean, obviously this goes back 400 years, but it, it, the, the techniques that they're using, that they keep fine-tuning. And so you criminalize the behavior of the people, even the very lives of the people. And then when they do anything in any way that causes, you know, a cop to, to come in and, and uh, overreact is not the right word, but, you know, viciously kill one of them, then what do you do? They start saying, oh, well, you know, uh, implicitly, he deserved it because he was a bad guy. Well, you know, how did that happen, right? You, I'm reciting your three-part thing here, am I not? Yes, and I will tell you this in closing, that I believe it was John Paul Sartre. I may be wrong, but I believe it was John Paul Sartre who said this. If I can convince you of absurdities, I can get you to commit atrocities. Yeah, I don't recall specifically who said it. You may well be right, but it's, it, it is something that is so important for all of us to consider. Whew, amazing. Kenyatta, always great to hear from you. Keep up the great writing over at opednews.com. Thank you very much. And, Thank you, uh, sir. Are you publishing on Medium now, or are you, are you still over at Op-Ed? I am publishing at Medium as well as Op-Ed, as well as Black Agenda Report. So I'm just getting started with Medium, and thanks to your guidance and pointing me in that direction. And so, you know, I keep trying to just uh, educate people as best I can, get them to think. So if somebody wants to find you on Medium, how do they do it? Ron Kenyatta at Medium.com. And it's R-O-H-N? Yes, sir. R-O-H-N. Right. Kenyatta. Great. Thank you, Kenyatta. Great talking with you. I do appreciate the call. Steve in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I uh, want to talk about Trump, but I couldn't agree more. Uh, we need to pass the filibuster to uh, save our planet and uh, save humanity and forget about colonizing Mars. Um, we just yeah. clean up our own planet and get the filibuster done. But um, 
I guess I was I was off by about fifty thousand. About three weeks ago, I, I said that Trump had uh, four hundred fifty thousand deaths on his hands, and you, like you said, UCLA just came out with four hundred that basically he's murdered. But um, in in February seventh here, Trump's implicated himself. He he basically the smoking gun is right here. He said to Bob Woodward, and this was in a private private interview. He said that uh, he says it is more deadly than your strenuous flus. And he says it's 5% more deadly versus 1% or less than 1%. He says, so this is deadly stuff. This is very easily found on the Internet. And you remember that interview. And then publicly, he oh, took it's a in totally Woodward's book? I'm sorry? It's in Woodward's book? Yeah, it was from his interview. It was, I even saw it on Rachel Maddow and all that. And you can easily yeah. Google it. What I Googled was... Yep. was Trump said to Bob Woodward that the COVID virus was very deadly. And you'll just come across a, a whole plethora of articles, Tom. Yep. So he, he said that to Woodward in private, but publicly he did a different stance. And I still feel, I maintain, and I may be wrong on this, everything he's done in his, his political career here has been under the direction and for the benefit of Putin. That's just my opinion. I can't disagree with that, Steve. I wouldn't say everything, but I think that if Vladimir Putin, or for that matter, if uh, Putin and Ben Salman and Xi, I mean, you know, if the, if the kind of autocrats of the world got together and said to Donald Trump, here's a punch list, Trump punched every point in that punch list. Steve, thanks a lot for the call. Spot on. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, I was listening to this uh, CNN report and the CNN special that Deborah Burks, you know, Dr. Deborah Burks, was claiming that she heaped this um, praise on Donald Trump in an effort to stay in the administration to mitigate, right. you know, to try to mitigate the disaster she saw coming. And yeah. I've seen that more and more. You know, I've seen it more and more people doing that. And I accept what she's saying. The problem is we have a culture of non-accountability for leaders. I mean, people don't expect accountability. And let me tell you where this where this is relevant right now, because you were referring to World War II earlier, okay? Look, Joe Biden, who I proudly voted for and I believe in, he reinstated, he's trying to do sanctions on the Nord Stream 2. That comes back, that is from the Obama administration. That's like a legacy sanctions against Russia and Nord Stream. Germany has already said, look, you know, we need, <laughs> it's too late. We need to, like, maybe waver, waive these, these sanctions on Russia. All right, over the Nord Stream. And the thing right. is, is Russia, Russia is analyzing all this. And I don't think they're in the mood for, you know, waiving sanctions or anything. And like during World War II, Germany decided to cancel out the American Navy subsurface using submarines to combat the American Navy. OK, but Japan never did. Japan said, look, we can do it underwater and we can do it from the air. That's where the American Navy is vulnerable. So, Dave, what's your point? Well, my point is, if we do not expect accountability, if we do not you know, demand accountability, that is going to be utilized by our adversaries to their advantage. Right? And there I are agree. All kinds I agree. Of ways. We, we have to we have to have accountability for, for 300,000 deaths. It's insane. That, I mean, it's just insane that we don't. Dave, thank you. Nancy in Palatine, Illinois. Hey, Nancy, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thank you for all you do. I, I'm a You're longtime welcome. listener. First caller. Thank you, Nancy. First time caller. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, lost both my parents to COVID in November, my dad, on oh my. Thanksgiving morning. And my, I guess my question to you, Tom, is I'm all for accountability because I'm very angry at what happened to a half a million families like our, our own family. My dad was in the hospital two weeks, died alone. And... Mm. We're very resentful. So, yes, we want accountability. We want it from Donald J. Trump. We want it from Michael Pence. But it isn't enough for myself or families like mine to just have a congressional investigation. Frankly, what kind of investigation are we going to get when half of half of the uh, you know representatives and the and the senators? Still now, don't think anything really bad happened. And, hey, you know, uh, people get sick, they die. And that's not what we want. 
Now, I have to be honest. I, I, I have a good attorney friend. I have, you know, asked him, what would be a, a way to hold Trump accountable? Can we do a class mm-hmm. action lawsuit? Can we do a yeah. civil lawsuit? And, what did he say? Um, he, he said that he believes that there will be that type of accountability. That's interesting. Nancy, I'm sorry we're hitting the break here, uh, but thank you for the call. And I'm so sorry to hear about your parents. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. You know, sovereign immunity protects Trump while he's in office. Since he's been out of office, he's continuing to, to spew a lot of this weird stuff about masks. Maybe that. Tom Harvard here with you. And uh, Michael in Bangor, Maine, says you're a lawyer. You wanted to comment on Trump's liability for the 400,000 deaths that the scientific community is now laying at his feet? Yeah, I would, Tom. Nice to speak with you again. I'm an anomaly. I'm a conservative lawyer. There's not many of them around. But first of all, even if they can lay at his feet for, let's say, nonfeasance, there's no possible way that you could make a criminal beyond a reasonable doubt argument, that that he would be guilty of genocide, as you exaggerated. And the reason is... I didn't order, use that word, it, actually. I don't think. I think you... I, I believe you did. That's why it triggered well, me. Oh, perhaps call. I did. But, you know, killing 400,000 people, I mean, you know, on his watch, because he ignored the scientific evidence, and I believe he did so... Uh, you know, April 7 was the big pivot date, Michael. Prior to eight, April yep. 7, you had the Trump administration shut down the United States. They had shut it down three or four weeks earlier. They were, they were preparing. The U.S. Postal Service had, had already appropriated the funding and negotiated the deal to send five free masks to every American family. The Trump administration was going to come out in favor of all of this. This was while Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci were, or, uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Fauci were still in the, in the loop. And then on April 7th, every newspaper in America, it was the basically the only story that was reported all day long on CNN and MSNBC, came out with this report that black people who make up uh, 17% of the U.S. population were something like 60, 65% of the deaths. And, and that all of the, de- that the virtually all of the deaths were happening in states with Democratic governors. That hit the media. And in the following week, and I've documented this in a half a dozen articles that you can easily find if you just search my name on April 7th. Um, and, and in the following week, suddenly the conservative media, Fox News, all the right-wing hosts, and the Trump administration said, okay, time to open the country back up. Looks like this doesn't kill white people like we thought it did. It mostly just kills black people. And I think post-April 7th, you can make a case for actual malice, Michael. I, I, I think, Tom, you're the most rational person on serious progressive most of the time. I listen to you a lot. But I think that you're being conspiratorial here. You can't prove any of that. You don't, how, what, would, what would Trump's motive have been? He just wanted to kill black people? You think no. that's what he wanted to no, do? No, he, he, no, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that. And first of all, I can prove everything I just said because I didn't do any, you know, therefores in there. Literally, as I said, you can Google this. I've, I've assembled all the articles from all the right-wing sites pre and post April 7th. And I've assembled all of Trump's statements pre and post April 7th. There was this screeching 180 degree turn. Last night on CNN, in this uh, discussion, Sanjay Gupta was like, we don't know what happened in April, but suddenly the Trump administration changed. Well, that was the day. That was the day that that happened. So if I may, you just said, and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here. I'm just quoting you. You said that you could make a case for malice under the law. That means you are implying that he intended these actions for a particular purpose. Malice requires intent. 
What yes. was his I am not suggesting, Michael, that his purpose was to kill black people. What I am suggesting well, well, is that his mean? purpose, and I, haven't, and I haven't said this up to this point, so I should just lay this out very clearly, because he told us what his purpose was. He wanted to get the economy open again because he thought that the damage to the economy, which had already happened as a result of the three weeks since mid-March when he shut down the country, we already saw that. We had, you know, suddenly the stock market dropped by, by a, thousand, a couple thousand points. You had millions of people who got laid off their jobs, cities shut down, airlines shut down. He looked at that damage and he said, you know, if this lasts for another six, eight months, there's no way I'm going to get reelected. And so he wanted to get America back to work in order to get himself reelected, even if that meant that people died, because, hey, a majority of the people who die are going to be black. And and his and, and the right wingosphere, if you go back and look at what was happening at these right wing sites, particularly Freedom Works, the, you know, the, one of the big ones supported by the Kochs. It was after April 7th that suddenly they were literally promoting these reopen America hashtags. It was a week after April 7th that Trump tweeted, you know, uh, what was it, free Michigan or liberate Michigan. And then liberate, uh, you know, he was like, you know, he, he was he was feeding this frenzy to fight back against wearing masks and to reopen businesses. And he was doing it for the simple purpose of politics, simply to get himself reelected, knowing that it would increase the number of people who would die. Michael, your rebuttal. Uh, I think that you're pulling a lot of threads together to try to knit a sweater that you can't make. I am. In terms of, that's right, and that's a problem with your case, because there are well, so many you build a case. premises. Can you identify anything that I have said at any point in this that is not accurate? I mean, Trump himself was saying, I want to get people back to business. Trump himself said, this is going to hurt my election chances. He came out how and said it. In the, so what? How, how in the world does that prove a motive to allow people to die rather than get the economy going? That's the, getting the well, economy when someone tells you what their motive is, you believe it. But... Tom, trying to get he had all of his scientific advisors in the White House, with one single exception, Scott Atlas. All of the rest of them were telling him, if we go down this road that you want us to go down, you're going to have hundreds of thousands of dead Americans. And Scott Atlas was saying, that's OK. You know, we can we can protect those old people. We just need to get herd immunity, which was a total BS thing. And Trump promoted him because he was saying what Trump thought would get him reelected, which was get the economy back going, get that stock market back up there, you know, because when the economy's bad, incumbents don't get reelected. Um, let me say yeah. something. Okay, the problem with your argument is that governors, not the president, were running every program to try to stop this disease, and they were ignoring him. You don't have a case Some for causation on a criminal. There was a diversity among the governors. But you make a point, Michael. You make a point. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Michael. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive. And start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be. 
Our book today is just another N-word, My Life in the Black Panther Party by Field Marshal Don Cox, His Life in the Black Panther Party. This is from Chapter 5, page 47. The chapter is titled, Use What You Got to Get What You Need. Before we entered into a direct relationship with the Panthers, our group had wanted to prove our worthiness by our actions. Since that was no longer in question, contact was made and a rendezvous fixed to meet at Huey's Pad on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland. I don't remember much about that first gathering, other than meeting David Hilliard, the Panther Party's chief of staff, for the first time. The only thing that stands out in my memory is a question from Huey as we were sipping coffee. He asked if I didn't think it better to be properly equipped before going into action. He suggested it was best to first rip off the necessary funds to get everything we needed in advance of launching a major effort. I had practically memorized his essay, The Correct Handling of a Revolution, in which he spoke of teaching by example. And so I blurted out the first thing that came to mind, which was, use what you got to get what you need. After a long, hot summer of 1967, with the rebellions in Newark, Detroit, and elsewhere, we felt that our preparations had, at least, put us on the same level as the rest of the country, and that the revolution would not pass us by. Our San Francisco group started attending and participating in any and all functions relevant to black people, and we tried to get to know everyone in our area associated with the struggle. We also continued our community meetings. News of the death of Che Guevara in October of that year had us walking around in a stupor for a while, and although it came as a severe blow to the international struggle for freedom and justice of all people, we were proud to be among those who had responded to his battle cry and had picked up the fallen arms. Huey asked if we would conduct a meeting on Hunter's Point for him. He was supposed to go, but something had come up and he couldn't make it. We were honored that he thought enough of us to ask, and we were more than enthusiastic to do whatever he wanted. It was at that meeting that we had a new surprising experience. We met our first resistance in the form of Adam Rogers. He was supposed to have been the biggest, baddest N-word on Hunter's Point, but when we encountered him, he came across like an Uncle Tom. He seemed to be impressed with our firearms demonstration, but he was violently against the idea of black people arming themselves for self-defense. He was convinced that would increase repression, even though history proved him wrong. When we examine the history of repression of black people, the only time there was significant decline in police violence and murders perpetrated against blacks was precisely the period when blacks were organized and had access to guns. Given the wave of terror and violence against blacks that continues to sweep the country, I truly believe there is a lesson to be learned from that fact. Rogers was one of the wounded in the Hunter's Point Rebellion of the year before, and a photograph of him had been used by the news media to illustrate articles on the riots that broke out following the killing of a black teenager by police that September. Because of that, we were even more surprised by his reaction. It was not until later that we discovered that the administration of San Francisco Mayor Joseph Alito had sent in money after the rebellion and had bought off the so-called bad N-words. The same technique was used from coast to coast. Despite Rogers, most everyone seemed to like what we had to say and really related to the firearms demonstration. Several people wanted to take courses in handling weapons, and so I fixed a rendezvous for the following Saturday at the parking lot of the abandoned shopping center right on top of Hunter's Point. The next day, I arrived at the point at 7 in the morning in order to get set up before people began to gather. There wasn't going to be any target practice, but I would be firing a few shots in the air by way of demonstration. I knew that would pose no problem as far as the police were concerned. Due to their racism, whenever they heard shots on the point, they generally looked the other way. Once, during a dispute between two gangs, shooting broke out, and instead of police coming in to break it up, they sealed off the area and let them shoot it out. The gun battle lasted 24 hours, and the police didn't return until the next day. At around 8 o'clock, I saw David Hilliard's car driving up, which I found surprising because we had only seen each other a couple of times before. As the car approached, I recognized Emery Douglas and George Murray. Everyone had strange looks on their faces that made it clear that something was wrong. Damn, Huey had been shot and captured. He had shown up at David's, wounded and bleeding heavily. There was real concern for his life, so David drove him to the hospital and left him on the steps, then drove straight to San Francisco to find me. He said Huey had asked him to ask me to help out in the aftermath, specifically dealing with the passenger who had been in Huey's car at the time of the shootout, Officer John Frey of the Oakland Police, who had been killed. There was also the problem of the guns Huey had stockpiled. I'll never understand why David didn't just bring the guns with him, but he hadn't, and I was obliged to go back into the area, get everything, and get back out safely. That might sound easy, but the shootout had occurred less than three hours before, and there was one policeman dead and one seriously wounded, so it was hot over in Oakland, to say the least. There was no time to go by the house and unload the guns I had on hand for the training, so I followed David back to Oakland with a trunk full of weapons. 
David took me into the backyard of a house that had a lot of weeds and a stack of old lumber in which he had stashed the gun. In his state of excitement, he couldn't remember exactly where the pistol was, and while we were looking, an elderly black woman came out of the house next door and asked what we were doing. David kept searching and didn't look up. She then said, if you don't come out of there, I'm going to call the police. I began to panic and told David to say something to the woman. When he rose up, she recognized him and calmed down. This was David's house, and she was his neighbor. On the one hand, I was relieved, but on the other, if the police were looking for the passenger who'd been with Huey, it was certain they wouldn't miss David's house, as both were known Panthers. Finally, he found the gun, and it continues from there. Just another N-word, My Life in the Black Panther Party by Field Marshal Don Cox. Welcome back. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, what's on your mind today? Hey. I know you've been on hold a while. My apologies, but thanks for being there. What's on your mind? Oh, sure. I appreciate the uh, conversation I've heard so far. Tom, as it relates to racism, for me, uh, just looking at the opening statements with the uh, Chauvin trial and Mm -hmm. uh, just looking at that tape, Tom, anybody who sees that and does not believe that that was a murder committed, uh, I think something is, is seriously wrong with them. So yep. at this at this stage in the game, Tom, you know, I, I always present to you, I ask, what does the white community, you know, what do you want us to do as black people? And then what are you willing to do to make this situation better? Because I know in the past, Tom, when black people have boycotted or burned down cities, we've gotten results. We don't want to do that. But we will not continue to just go backwards and live the life that we're living. Tom, as a black person, and I'm just going to be honest about this, when I encounter white people, one of the first things that I say to myself, I hope this is not a racist person, white person. Mm. That is my daily encounter with all white people. And the reason I say say that time to myself so that I can put myself in the frame of mind to calm down in the event that it is and so that I just won't completely go off because I'm at a level I'm fed up. So what I ask the good white people, are you doing all that you can to help end this viciousness in this racist society? And as for the Republican Party, they're helping to perpetuate that. And with the election of Donald Trump as their leader, I have no purpose for the Republican Party. The Republican Party and the Democratic Party, Tom, and you correct me, they're both uh, private institutions. So I know we need yes. a multi-party system, but the Republican Party, for me, no go. And if they're proud to claim Trump and all the rest of this nonsense, particularly what they did in Georgia, then I'm proud to say, yes, I think you're a racist. Trump is a criminal sociopath. And if you support him, that's problematic. I I don't have room for that time, and I'm not going to entertain that nonsense. So I want the Republican Party, whatever you dismantled, uh, abolished, uh, disbanded, whatever they do, I want it gone. Because I see them as a serious, serious danger to this country. And that's just my hey. personal time. You, you as a white man, and I, I know you can't speak for all white people. What is it in white people that they still, and some of them, not all, I don't want to generalize, that they have such a severe hatred for black people and other people? Tom, we were kidnapped and tortured to be here. We built this country as slaves. I don't even know my true last name because I'm carrying around the name of a slave master. Everywhere I'm judged is based on how I look, no matter what college I graduated from, no matter how decent I try to be. And I'm trying to maintain my humanity because that's what I was taught. That's the representation of my family. But I'm not going to tolerate this racism. I don't care who it's from. And I'm going to speak out against it. And if you don't see Chauvin as the murderer that he is, then something is wrong with you mentally. What black police officer could choke and kill a white man and not have the white community up in arms? Yeah. Tom, I know I'm putting a lot on the table, but 
I'm telling you, we cannot function like this as black people. And we are fed up and we are tired. And we are mad as I, hell. And I'll wait, hang up, Tom. Get, thank you. Okay, thank you, Pim. I completely get what you're saying. And I agree with you in every regard. I think the one thing that, the one thing I would add, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to write about this this afternoon and make it my, my rant tomorrow, is that what we have to do is identify that strain of racism within the Republican Party. There used to be a powerful strain of racism inside the Democratic Party. It's called the Dixiecrats. And it was basically the Southern Democrats, the Strom Thurmonds of the world. The, you know, even Robert Byrd was in on this. He reformed himself, but he was, I think, the only one who actually did. You know, the George Wallaces, they were all Democrats. And the Democratic Party in, in the mid-1960s said, we're going to purge our party of this. And that's when Nixon came in and said, well, hey, white racists in the South or across the country, the Republican Party's got a place for you. Now that racist group has essentially coalesced, they've become one thing under one banner, one umbrella, you know, in front of one sign with one logo and one leader, which makes it a lot easier to identify them. And that is Trumpism. These are the Trump followers. They, they you know, they're not talking about free trade or, or uh, workers' rights or cleaning the air or, no, they're talking about, you know, brown people coming from Mexico and black immigrants coming from Haiti and, oh my God, you know, and BLM and Antifa. The racism that has infected the Republican Party is called Trumpism. I will, and thank you, Pam, for flipping my brain on that. I do appreciate it. It's always so nice to hear from you. We will continue this conversation tomorrow because I think that Pam has touched on one of the most important aspects of the American political dialogue right now. So get out there, get active, tag your it, share the good word. Check out HartmanReport.com. You'll see that piece I wrote about Trump in April 7th. I think you'll find it useful. to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 